You're listening to Flipping the Barrel Podcast, a women's perspective in oil and gas. We are your hosts, Macy and Jamie. And our mission here is simple, to bring you the untold stories of this industry. Welcome back to another podcast. Today is one of our first ESG professionals to come on, and we are so excited about this. Marie Merle Kekebeck is the Director of ESG Performance and Engagement for Schlumberger, and she was recently recognized as one of Heart Energy's 2021 Most Influential Women in Energy. You know, we just started the ESG certification program through the Workforce and Technology, and you know, formerly PISA. It's been an amazing experience, and we're really excited to just get in with Marie and just hear her side as she's actually in a role formerly for, you know, ESG specifically. So thank you so much for coming on today. Thanks, Jamie. Thanks, Maciel. I'm so excited to be here and to get to share a few thoughts with you guys today. So looking forward to it. Awesome, Marie. Okay, well, let's dive right in. Tell us a little bit about yourself. Where are you from? And what was life like growing up? Sure, I'd love to. So I was born in Paris, France. And in the early 80s, My parents actually moved to Houston. There was a school that was developing Audi International School for many of you who may have heard of it. And they were both recruited as teachers. They had always wanted to have an international assignment. And they really thought that they were going to be here for a few years and then head back. But they loved the U.S. They loved Houston. And they've been here ever since. We became American citizens when I was actually in high school. And my brother is a first-generation American. He was born. He's eight years younger. So I went to Audi for a few years throughout elementary school. And then just to give you an idea of how small Audi was at the time, my mom was about to be my third grade teacher. And so that would have been a little bit awkward. And so they moved me to Duchenne Academy. It's a Sacred Heart, all girls Catholic school. And that was really my first experience in an all American school. And that kind of led my entire childhood because the rule growing up was that I would speak English at school at Duchenne. And then as soon as my brother and I walked in the front door at our house, we spoke French. Being French, my parents really, really cared about maintaining that culture, maintaining the language. And I'm really happy that they did. You know, growing up as a kid, it was always a little bit frustrating to have to do the French homeschooling. My mom, being a teacher, was very adamant about the fact that she wanted us to know how to read and write in French. And so, yeah, I always spoke English at school, French at home. And what it did is it gave me a deep appreciation for cultures and languages and really travel. Both of my parents being teachers, my dad left and started working in business So he didn't have the full summer off like my mom did. But my mom, for an entire childhood, we would always head back to France for two months. And so I developed a really tight bond with my grandparents, even though they were overseas, we would get to see them every summer for several months. And I just loved France. And I was always kind of torn between the two cultures. I have such an appreciation for the US. And I also love France. And so that really drew me, to be honest, to wanting to learn a third language. I learned Spanish both in middle school, high school, and I minored in it in college. And I knew that I wanted to work for an international company. So our family is small. It's just my brother and I, both of my parents are only children. And so we had a really small family, but a really close one where communication was incredibly important. Some people would say we over-communicate. I feel (laughs) at any given moment, everybody knows in the family what the other person is doing. And I think that that you know, had a big influence on my life as well. You mentioned going to an all-girls school. You know, that's not very common. So what do you think, you know, specifically 
why do you think your parents put you in that? And when you moved on to college, was it difficult, you know, transitioning into, you know, more of a, not all girls school, you know, there's, there's a gentleman there too. Like, how did that go for you? You know, I think there's pros and cons in any school that you go to. So I think that going to an all-girls school, they chose it because they had heard about it. Duchenne's reputation from an academic standpoint was really good. I grew up Catholic, and so they just felt like it would be a, a good fit for me. I feel like you really learn how to value yourself and you don't have any distractions. But I'm also a strong advocate that people need to be surrounded by environments that resemble the world. And so I have no issues with all girls or same sex education, but I also really value, you know, public school and other schools that have co-ed. So I think that it's really about making that experience work for you. And I think that, you know, having exposure and just being mindful that other people are different and just being open and tolerant of all different people is really important. But, you know, I still keep in touch and some of my closest friends are the ones that I grew up with at Duchenne. And so that's really near and dear to my heart. That's awesome. Sometimes yeah, I wish I would have went to an all-girls school. Yeah. Guys oh, can yeah. be a pain when you're younger, you know, they're the bullies. But um, <laughs> so- yeah, you, Sorry, you asked about college and I went to Trinity University also in Texas in San Antonio. And it was a little bit of, you know, of a difference, like, oh, wow, there's all these guys in the class. I was relatively shy at the beginning. And I think that I found myself and, and was able to kind of understand that balance. I wish that I had maybe a bit more of that balance throughout high school. You know, I was, my parents were very strict and I didn't get to have, you know, as much guys around me, mm-hmm. but it worked out really well. I love Trinity and I had a, a really great experience. So I remember when we first met you, you mentioned that you wanted to do pre-med probably with both your parents being in education and school being a really big deal. But after spending a lot of time with your dad and him kind of being more in the business world, you realize that maybe that's something that you would most likely like versus kind of being in a hospital and kind of do a doctor kind of job. So you ended up switching, which I think a lot of people listening probably switched their majors. It's very, very common. How did that lead you to work in oil and gas? So how, how was that transition from when you graduated here, you were going to be a pre-med and then all of a sudden you're here in summer in oil and gas. How did that happen? Sure. So I did, you know, I, I don't recommend declaring your major first semester or freshman year. Actually, mm-hmm. the universities never recommend that either. But in high school, I was sure, 100% sure that I wanted to be an ophthalmologist. My junior year, I remember of high school, my Christmas gift, I had asked my parents, you know, I really want medical books. So that's, you know, I was kind of a nerd. And I just had such a passion for biology. I was really good at biology. I liked genetics. I was reading up a lot about genetics. And so I did declare my freshman year pre-med. And, but I remember distinctively that during that holiday, that first break after college, I got to talk to my dad a bit about what he did. And my dad worked for a international chemical transport company, and he was in charge of sales for North and South America. And what I liked about his role is, first of all, the engagements that he had with people. I've always been a bit of a people person and he is as well. And I just love that he got to travel, that he got to see different cultures and he was a problem solver, you know, and I thought that that obviously when you're a doctor, you are also a problem solver. Mm -hmm. I liked, you know, that kind of 
you know, looking at what he did and, and seeing him work at the office. I spent, you know, a couple of weeks just kind of observing what he did and, and seeing how he got to a sales transaction. And so I felt like maybe the rapport that I had with people was something that was a skill and I wanted to develop that. And I really thought that business might be a good fit. So I came back, I thought about it for a few months and I redeclared my major. And so I graduated with a bachelor of science degree in, in business administration. And then I had two concentrations. One was in marketing and one is in international business, which I felt kind of rounded out what I wanted to, to study. So I think that you know, any field that somebody picks, you just need to make sure that it's in line with what you feel that you're good at. And if you're not good at it, that's fine. Just make sure that you challenge yourself and, you know, try to find skill sets that you can, that can align with your job. You wouldn't be comfortable in your job and you want it to feel like something that you enjoy to do and not a chore. And so, yeah, I'm very happy with the decision that I made that first year. Well, I know that with what you said, you know, you definitely want an international company. Schlumberger checks off that box. But I remember you saying that you didn't really understand even what Schlumberger did at the time. So can you talk to us about how you actually got the job and like what your first thoughts were when you entered into oil and gas? Yeah, sure. So in college, you're right. I wasn't really sure what field I would want to work in. I knew that I wanted to work with a diverse group of people. And so I kind of started looking my junior year of college and I had interned with different companies throughout college, just doing different things. I worked for a PR firm. I worked for a property management firm where I was supposed to come in as an intern and the property manager resigned. And so I actually got to, you know, play a property manager for two months, which was a really cool experience at 19 years old, or I think I was just about to be 20 But I knew that I wanted, again, you know, the diversity and not only diversity in terms of nationality, but diversity of thought, which was Mm -hmm. me. And so I looked at different companies and I had heard about Schlumberger. I remember my grandfather in France telling me that the first stock in the stock market he had ever bought was Schlumberger stock. And he didn't know a lot about oil and gas either, but he had said, I know it's a good company and it's been around for a long time. And I liked kind of that historical background of Schlumberger. And I liked that it had some French origins, which obviously was important to me. So I knew one person that worked for Schlumberger. He and his dad worked for Schlumberger. And so I kind of interrogated them with all the questions that I could think of. And I realized that, you know, I didn't know a lot about the energy industry or specifically oil and gas. So I applied online. They had an online as they do now, applied online. And the Thanksgiving before my senior graduation, my senior year. So I graduated in May. So the November prior, I was with a group of girlfriends from Duchenne, actually, and we were having dinner. And we were talking about, you know, what are we going to do in six months when we are out, you know, and we're officially adults. And I started talking about Schlumberger and I started talking about, and the table next to us, this is funny coincidence, the table next to us overheard me saying Schlumberger. And we started talking, it was a couple And the man was actually a manager at Schlumberger and he worked in marketing communication, which was the department that I was trying to get into. And so we started talking and spoke to his wife and he became my first boss. You know, he was open and said that there were no positions to fill at the time. But I said, you know, can I keep in touch and can I show you the thesis that I'm writing? I was doing an overview project as part of our business policy course. And I was doing an analysis on Sherwin Williams. I'll always remember you know, what that project was. And so I kept in touch 
And he actually said, look, there's no positions, but why don't you come in and just interview and meet some of the team in December? So this was just, you know, a month afterwards. So I ended up spending five hours speaking to different people in the marketing communication team. And then, you know, next year will be my 20th year at Schlumberger. So it worked. And I never, you know, if you had asked me in 2002, how long I would have stayed at Schlumberger, I really didn't know. And I didn't really have a concept that somebody could stay fulfilled in the same job for 20 years. And I have to say Schlumberger has such a way to keep people motivated, keep people challenged. And every role that I've had over the last, you know, 19 years has helped me kind of reinvent what I knew and and challenge me to learn new things. And so, yeah, I think everybody's kind of journey is different in terms of how you land in the role that you have. But I have to say, like, I just trusted my gut and was showcased genuinely what I knew how to do and was open to things that I didn't know how to do. But I'm a quick learner and I'm always eager to learn and to listen to others. And so I think, yeah, that's how it happened for me. It doesn't mean that it'll happen exactly the same way for somebody else. But, you know, it's a story that I'm proud of. Mm. That's actually an incredible story. Like when you say life just happens and, you know, you meet people for the, you know, for the right reasons, what are the odds of you sitting down at a restaurant and then here's your future manager across the table, just listening to you talk about Schlumberger. That's crazy. (laughs) But it just, yeah. And and I remember coming into Schlumberger and I think this applies to anybody who's joining an organization, big or small. The team that I joined at the time was marketing communication and it was you know, a small, very tightly knit team. They all knew each other. They had worked together. There wasn't a lot of movement in that team in terms of external hires. And so, you know, I was the 22-year-old coming in who had no previous oil and gas experience. And I, I you know, I had to prove that I had, that I would add value to the team, but also I had to be honest and show that I wasn't afraid to ask questions. I mm-hmm. mean, that I didn't know. And thankfully I had, you know, very strong team members that were able to help me and get me on board. And so I think that again, back to communication and building relationships, Mm -hmm. I think that that is the core of everything we do. People are at the core of everything we do. And so that is something that we need to nurture. I love that. That's really well put. At the end of the day, it's all about people and communication, which is key. And I think sometimes it's probably one of the hardest things to do in such a big company is communication. But yeah, no, that's awesome. So like you mentioned, you started in marketing, and then you kind of did move your way up. There was a part of your career where you were part of a merger and acquisition role. How did you handle the stress that comes along with merging two companies or, you know, anything that has to do with two different cultures, two different teams kind of being put together as one, you were part of that. How did you deal with that when, you know, a lot of people could be losing their jobs or, you know, there's so much stress around what's happening? How did you handle that period in your time during those roles? Sure. So like I mentioned, the beauty of Schlumberger is that you're always going to be challenged in so many different times during your career. And when I was asked to be part of the integration team for, this was in 2009, when Schlumberger and Smith International had announced that they were merging and it was the largest oil and gas services merger that had ever been. And like you said, it is putting people together and people were going to, some people were going to lose their jobs. Some people were going to leave. And so it was one of the most challenging roles. And I have to say the rest of the integration team was comprised of managers that were much more senior than I was. So one of the challenges was proving that 
you know, the seven years of Schlumberger experience that I had had, and also, you know, my passion for communication, and, you know, whether it's internal communication or external communication would come in value. And the team was actually incredible. I am still to this day, actually quite close to many of the team members. And I think that we had such an incredible leader, our manager, who's the head of mergers and acquisitions, Simon Ferrant, did a really great job at no matter who had what experience, he just really rallied up the troops. And we had a really solid team and full of professionalism, full of respect. But coming into that role, I knew that you know, my background was not mergers and acquisitions. And again, I had to learn as much as I could, as fast as I could. And thankfully, with the support of both my functional manager and my direct manager, I was able to make that role my own. And I remember the first thing that I did when I accepted the position is I went online and I started looking at books on successful mergers and acquisitions. And I ran across a book that was called The Human Side of Mergers and Acquisition. And it really taught me when I read that, you know, it taught me how to be as attentive to the human side of the deal as the financial side. And, you know, we have to remember that mergers and acquisitions are more than just a transaction. You're dealing with people's lives as you're working closer. In our case, we, you know, the deal was reviewed by the Department of Justice for a long time. And so a lot of questions arose from both companies on the Schlumberger side and the Smith International side. And MI Swaco was part of that merger as well. And so as the communication manager, the integration manager, I needed to focus on making sure that any communication that was going, whether again, internal stakeholders or external was factual, was timely, that it came across as credible. And there were things that we hadn't ironed out yet and we didn't know. And so it's okay to say in a merger, we're working on this. This is what we're thinking, you know? So to be honest and transparent with the progress as well. And I think that I learned so much because I realized as well that the questions that I had on the Schlumberger side were different than the questions that I had on the Smith side. It also made me realize that just because two companies are large, you know, we had core and common values that complemented one another, but there was, you know, a little bit of differences in both cultures. And so you had to, to realize that a big international company and a company like Smith International that had a larger U.S. presence is going to have you know, a little bit of a different way of doing things. And so being adaptable and most importantly, remembering that communication is not top down only. It needs to be bottom up. So it needs to be two-way communication to be successful. Because if you don't listen to your audience and you're just talking and you walk away, you're going to lose a lot of that value. And you're going to have an issue with retention if people don't feel like they're getting heard. But I absolutely loved that role. you know. And I don't think our team slept a lot during those two years. Remember, we would give each other awards as like, you know, we're the late owl award. And <laughs> Uh, but it was a really intensive job, but it was absolutely excellent. And I learned so much. What I really like about your response is that you said, I went online and I looked for a book and you read a book like that just shows that, you know, you knew you were going into a role and instead of being like, oh, my first day in this new role, I'll figure it out. You were proactive and you were like, hey, where has this been successful? 
what can I pull from that in order to put into, you know, my new role and, you know, walk in ready. So I think that's like a real, really good advice for, you know, those who are listening that might be moving into a new role or might be becoming managers, you know, reading books is one of the top things you can do. And I think sometimes we forget about that. So thank yeah. you for sharing. And, and that. one thing I wanted to add. So like I mentioned earlier, I was, you know, I grew up really close to my family and my grandmother, when she was still alive, my maternal grandmother and I had a really deep bond. And I remember that she would tell me, no matter how hard things get, you know, challenge yourself, but do things with respect and, and be empathetic to others, even if you don't agree with them, even if you have a different way of seeing that. And, you know, it's funny, something that you learn growing up as a child came back to me in this role. And I remember saying, you know, just like my grandmother said, respect and empathy in this case equals you know, decreased attrition Mm -hmm. and people just being more comfortable, feeling relevant, feeling heard. And so it's, you know, again, I think some of the lessons that you learn throughout your life will absolutely play a role in your, in your career. And it has for me. Yeah, no, I totally agree. And I think this really segues into your new role, you know, as a director of ESG performance and engagement, you know, you knew a little bit about sustainability, you kind of understood, but you didn't truly grasp the value of like what that could bring to a company. And then you move into this role and you're kind of, you know, in this space where everybody right now, I mean, the last year, it's all been about ESG and people are trying to understand really what that means and what that means to the company. And you mentioned last time we talked that you developed more added initiatives as you, you know, continue in this role and understand, you know, what that is. Can you give us a few examples so that our listeners can kind of understand, you know, what your type of role, what that encompasses? Yeah, absolutely. So it's funny because when I was asked to be the director of, and for those who may not know what ESG is, it's environmental, social, and governance. So I was asked three years ago to join as director. And I know now that my definition of sustainability, which is another word to describe ESG, was really narrow. You know, I thought that when I thought about sustainability, you know, and if I had defined it three years ago, it would have been more about corporate giving or what we did at an HQ level to strengthen our reputation and also give back. And I thought it was more of a voluntary type initiative to give back, you know, to planet or community. And I was really missing the concept that when you tie environmental and social initiative to your business goals, that is what sustainability is. So, you know, if you prioritize correctly, we position sustainability at the center of our corporate strategy. So it's not a nice to have. It's, you know, about making a measurable impact. And really, you know, we talk about the triple bottom line approach. So it's finding that balance between what's the impact on the environment, what's the impact on community, and then what's the impact on financials? Because you can't do something that's only focused on the environment and then you don't make any profit, just like you can't do the other way. You can't make a lot of profit and also damage the environment. So it's really having that holistic look of what is my operation, whether directly or indirectly, how does that affect communities? How does that affect the planet? And then how does that, you know, align with my business goals? So it's evolved from a nice to have to an expectation. Mm -hmm. And, you know, when I came in, I, it's like a light bulb went off and I found a passion that I didn't know I was even missing or looking for. And I know that any role that I have, moving forward, I will pull in sustainability. It's something that I'm going to leave in this role. Mm -hmm. Sustainability is actually core of 
you know, everything that we do, whether it's our focus on safety, our focus on developing workforce in different countries mm-hmm. where you work or in the one country where some companies, you know, they might not be global, right? So the investment that you put into your workforce, it's about, you know, broadening that lens of how you view diversity. It's making sure that the communities where you're putting your business, you're not only reaping the benefits of those communities, but you're giving back in a way. And I have some strong examples, like in Ecuador, for example, Schlumberger had invested in a textile mill startup. And this textile mill was run by single mothers. So immediately you think, oh, wow, you're giving back to the community. But on the flip side, it actually helped us get all of our PPE, so personal protective equipment, at a discounted rate. And when there was some political turmoil, the community actually stood in front of our base to protect it. And we had less downtimes than many other companies. So again, it's showing that an investment in people and investment in communities can actually help you meet your business objectives. And I think that it's a mindset, it takes a mindset shift to properly position, you know, how you're going to frame sustainability. Same thing for, you know, giving back to the planet. People think, well, I get this question all the time. Well, you work for oil and gas. Isn't it kind of an oxymoron to say that committed to the Paris Agreement or you want to reduce emissions when oil and gas plays such a big role in emissions, right? And so there's really two things that need to happen. One is there is the renewable grid that needs to strengthen and grow. And when you look at market projection, renewables will double when you look at the energy mix. But what's also going to tremendously increase is energy demand. And oil and gas will play a part in that energy demand. So it's not only about transitioning away from oil and gas. That's definitely, you know, one angle. And Schlumberger does that. We have a business portfolio called Schlumberger New Energy, which is beyond oil and gas. But even within oil and gas, as an industry, we need to look at and challenge the status quo and look at, are there ways that we can be more efficient? Are there ways that we can reduce our fuel consumption? You know, doing less truck traffic, you know, are we able to leverage digital to be able to increase safety? Are we able to reduce or, you know, incorporate renewables at our facilities where our power consumption will be reduced or will be more dependent on renewables. So there's a a, a whole plethora of things that we can do. And when you do it right, you know, again, savings from fuel, savings from power will save you money. So back to, you know, meeting business objectives, reducing cost is always an objective, as long as obviously you're not compromising reliability or safety. But there are ways that you can look at a strategy and frame out a strategy where you can very easily measure the financial benefits. And, you know, the the point that I always like to drive home is there are decades of research linking engagement. So when you have an engaged workforce, they're going to perform better. So a workforce that feels more connected to the company. And there's also research, not decades of research, but recent research over the last, I would say, five to 10 years, linking the a workforce that feels that their company has a responsible approach to how they treat the environment and how they treat people and communities, including human rights, they will feel more engaged. And so the formula that I always throw out there is sustainability equals added engagement and added engagement equals added performance. So again, it's not a nice to have. This is really important, especially coming out of a downturn. Everybody has been reinventing themselves with COVID over the last year and everything you know that, that we have gone through as all over the world. And so mm-hmm. 
how can we strengthen performance and do it in a responsible way? So yeah, I'm very, very passionate about ESG. That's amazing. Barely knew what it was. <laughs> yeah, like for Jamie and I, it's been recent that we slowly got into ESG just because we realized it's here to stay. So we might as well jump on board. And it's it's all around us, not just oil and gas or even like companies that work, you know, around us. It's I even saw Chipotle like send an email from their CEO on ESG. And I was like, what? They're doing ESG too? It's just, it's all over the place. So it's definitely a really good role to be in and just have so much knowledge like you do. You're already ahead of the game. You know, some people are just starting to get into it. Even some companies haven't even really started. They're just beginning. And I feel like we're way ahead, you know? So I think that's important. So two small questions in one, out of the E, S, and G, right? And there's so many topics. Sometimes I'm overwhelmed during the courses of just, you know, how much stuff needs to be done. What would you say is like the one that you're the most passionate about? In be- like, is it like under social or is it under governance? Like what, which one out of all the stuff that kind of fall under ESG are you like the most passionate about that you want to share with us? And then the last part is just, sometimes it's hard for us to grasp like how companies are evaluating this. Like, how do you know you're successful and X, how do you know you like, how do you report or how do you know that these are your targets? And it's such a big company. How do you know that you're doing well around the world? How do you guys measure that? In other words, great questions. And I'm so glad that you're both taking the course with the energy council. I'm on that, the committee, the ESG committee. And it's just really one of the things I'm passionate about. And I'll get to your question is that this is a space, the whole, the entire ESG space has opportunities for industry to come together. So, you know, when you talk about marketing and pricing and everything else, people are competing, trying to get the best product to the the customers. And, but when it comes to safety or when it comes to sustainability, and obviously safety is part of sustainability, it's about coming together because if one company is painted in a negative light, if one company has an environmental spill, if one company has human rights violations, if one company has a huge safety incident, it makes our entire industry look bad. And Mm -hmm. so that's why, you know, the engagement portion of my role, in addition to the ESG performance portion, is about working with both competitors and customers to come up with solutions to align on priorities. And so You know, like you mentioned, it's a broad topic. Going back to what I said earlier, I think that if I had to pick one, which is the one that so many people are talking about, is the transition. And honestly, what that means, you know, there's a lot of kind of, especially if you're not working in the space every day, there's confusion around, well, does that mean that, you know, you're working your way out of a job or that our employees won't have a job? And again, back to the statement of it is about, exploring new ventures and exploring new avenues where you can apply our, you know, Schlumberger's expertise of the subsurface, for example, and see how that applies to lithium or that how that applies to hydrogen storage, right? There's a lot of talent that, you know, that you can apply, whether it's in the renewable space or in the oil and gas space, but it's also, you know, focusing that each and every one of us in our respective roles can play a part in addressing our impact on the environment. And when you look at emissions, you know, a lot of us do contribute again, directly or indirectly. And so I am passionate about making sure that we meet energy demands. I think that energy poverty is something that, you know, when you look at countries that don't have access to energy, they are developing countries. And so with energy come a lot of amazing innovation. And so I'm very passionate about that. 
I'm a passionate, you know, in line with the energy transition to make sure that STEM education continues to be promoted, especially in an industry that doesn't have as many women promoting STEM education. And Schlumberger has a program that's over 20 years old. It's called Schlumberger Excellence in Education Development, SEED. And we have a lot of other initiative. Our foundation arm has Faculty for the Future, where we sponsor PhDs for women in developing countries, encouraging them to continue to study STEM, to get PhDs, and then to work in the countries where they come from so that they can inspire young people all over the world to get involved in STEM. So I think that, you know, two things is increasing awareness around the energy transition and how an individual can play a role. And then secondly is inspiring the next generation. You know, you always hear millennials and all the different generations to feel like they have a voice and that they can actually contribute. It's not just, you know, our team, our sustainability team at corporate is very small. And I see us as a core team that helps write the blueprints. But in terms of actually putting that blueprint in action and the execution of that blueprint it's boots on the ground. It's people in the field. It's people in the functions. And so my passion is about getting that message out and making sure that people understand what they can do because we all play a part. We really do. So, so that's why, you know, when I see, you know, companies in and outside of our, our industry, sometimes, you know, slides will be green or there'll be a and for me, what's important is staying factual. And I think that it is perfectly fine to say, you know, we're really strong at this. And here's an area that we've identified that we have a lot of work to do. And, you know, you talked about Maciel, how do we measure success? It's about goal setting. So any one of us at Schlumberger and most other companies, we have yearly KPOs, objectives that you're working towards. So I think sustainability is no different as an industry and as a company you need to set objectives that are relevant to your business. And, you know, what we do at Schlumberger is the United Nations has 17 goals. They're called the Sustainable Development Goals. So if anybody on the podcast hasn't looked at them, I really encourage you to just read up, go to the United Nations website and look at these 17 goals. And it's 17 goals that the majority of countries around the world have aligned that these are priorities. And then look at how can I... We did a prioritization exercise at the corporate level. And then we also have a localized approach. So, you know, at corporate, we may be focusing on, we actually focus on four of them. But at a local level, a country may have different needs. You know, a country that is, you know, struggling with water and they don't have enough water will focus on the SDG that focuses on water. So it's about having a high-level strategy at a corporate level with key objectives and having the support of your leadership team and your board of directors, but also being flexible enough that you can have a localized way of looking at things and having you know goals that are most relevant to the country where you operate. So, so there's a, you know, a lot to say about that. I think the way that you explained it was beautiful. I actually learned more in that than in a lot of other things that we have read up on and, and heard about. But what I like most, and that is why I think Slumberger is so well known internationally, is what you said about local. You're going down to the roots of the people in that area as the most important because at a high level, there always is, you know, great objectives that sound wonderful, but the people down at the very lowest level don't always get to see those. So seeing the local aspect of it, I think 
is the most impactful. And I really appreciate you sharing that. And, you know, a few examples just locally here, you can see where, you know, certain operators might have planted trees. And I see it all the time in Cyprus. It says, you know, proudly supported by Apache. So, you know, that's something where you can put the operator name or the service company in oil and gas name associated to something great, which is planting trees. So I love how you explained it. And thank you so much. And I really think that a lot of people on the podcast are going to be like, now I get it. Okay. That makes yeah. a lot more sense to, you know, what this is and, you know, really focusing on that S and ESG, I think is very important. So yeah. Thank and you I so think much. for me, I've, you know, I've always been a people person and I have two children. I have a two and a four-year-old. So I had kids close to my forties and it really gave me a different perspective. I was like, oh, wow, this is not only for me or for my company or for my husband. It's like, for my for kids. I want the world and I want the planet and and the way that we treat people. I want us to continue improving that so that when they're, you know, my age and when they're having children, that they have a lovely planet to live on as well. So I think becoming a parent really kind of changes things and puts things in perspective. Like, you know, I need to do better. I need to be, I need to challenge again, the status quo even more so for them and for their generation. Oh, I love that. Thank you so much, Marie. We really appreciate you coming on. And yeah, if you want to find out more about Marie, you can follow her on LinkedIn, Marie Merrill K Quebec. And yeah, thank you so much again for coming on. We love talking about ESG. We should probably do another one where we can go a lot more in depth because this is just covering like 1% of ESG, everybody. There is so much more. So yeah, thank you so much again for coming on, Marie. Thank you, both of you. It was a pleasure to be here. And anyone can, you know, look me up on LinkedIn. I'm happy to talk. And like I said, I'm really passionate about this. Thank you for having me.